I will be reading from Haggai, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. You might realize that people all over the world are moving. They're moving from one country, one region, moving to other countries, other regions. I don't know how you can even estimate such things, but the experts in this field tell us it's likely that hundreds of millions of people on our planet right now are in some process of moving, of migrating. That's just staggering. And it's often very complicated to do that, and it often comes with many, many difficulties. There's a lot of reasons why people might move from one place, one region of the world to another. Sometimes it's just simply the prospects of a better life, more food, able to take care and provide for a family. Sometimes it's because of a natural disaster that just makes living in a certain place unsustainable. Other times it's war or governmental changes. So again, the statistics would tell us 6.3 million people are refugees right now from Syria. They have been displaced out of their homeland. 6.3 million. Sometimes there's persecution, whether it's religious or ethnic cleansing. Yeah, true, sometimes the migration of people moving from this place to that place, sometimes it's voluntary. Often it's not. That there's really no choice in the matter. People are forced to make some of the hardest decisions. What's also interesting of the people moving in this world is while some will return back home, many will never do that. Many will never resettle. I mentioned people moving because one of the storylines in the Bible, one of the major storylines of the Bible, especially in the first part of the Bible, maybe the first two-thirds that we have of the Bible, which we call the Old Testament, is that the people of God, the people of Israel, they move. They migrate. They move in, in, in various ways and at different times. As a matter of fact, in the last part of the Old Testament story, the people of Israel actually get deported. They get deported from the land of Israel to what is now modern-day Iraq, which was then Babylon. They get deported There's just waves of deportation that clear out that land of Israel. And then a few decades and a few kings and an empire later, they come back. Many of them do anyway. They get the opportunity to go home and resettle. As a matter of fact, Ezra 2 tells us that there's this first wave of Israelites that move from Babylon back to Israel, that that first wave encompassed about 42,000 people. That, that group moved to inhabit a land. That number 42,000 is 
stuck with me because I remembered I've seen that number earlier this week. And actually, 42,000 is the number of Somali refugees that are resettled, resettled in 2017 back into Somalia. If you know anything about that land, you can just imagine how difficult it is for those 42,000 people that moved back home last year in 2017 to resettle. How hard is it for them to do that? How complicated will it be for them to regain any sort of life? 42,000 people move of the, of the Israelites, men, women, kids, they move 900 mile, miles and they resettle in Jerusalem. When they come back, Jerusalem is a pile of ruins. It's, there's devastation and there's desolation. I can't imagine physically what that would mean. I, I have a hard time even imagining emotionally what that would mean to go back to the homeland, go back to some place that you warmly remembered or some place that your parents or grandparents had told you about only to see it just completely in ruins. Nothing really left. Why do I, why do I tell you all this? Well, the story of Haggai traces 15 weeks in the lives of those 42,000 people that came back to Jerusalem just a small window of time. I have to, have to tell you, so our series is Failure and Hope, and it's a study of Haggai. We'll spend a few weeks in, in this book. But if you think of the Bible, if you think of the Bible as like a spiritual drive-through, where you get some what some have called like Bible McNuggets out of the drive-through window, and then you're on your way, I'm guessing you'll never spend long in books like Haggai. If you're just wanting to get the quick this or that and move on your way, I don't think you're going to spend time in this book. I think if your life is so absorbed in yourself and you think everything revolves around you, even God himself revolves around you, I'm I'm pretty much guessing Haggai's not a book that you're going to land in very often. But if you believe that our God speaks if you believe even more specifically that he speaks through an ancient text we call the Bible, that God breathed out these very words, and they are written for our instruction, for our admonition, for our warning, for life itself, then you know what? It is well worth, it is well worth investing a little time even to understand some of the more obscure books of the Bible. So I definitely want to encourage you to do that. And we'll do that over the next few weeks. But here's the plan for today. I want us to back up and see a little bit more of the backstory of Haggai. I'll try not to belabor that because I think sometimes in backstories and in histories you can get, you can miss the whole forest because you're so enamored with particular trees. And so I'll, I'll work hard not to do that. So I do want us to look at the backstory. And then I want us to actually, I hope you keep your Bibles open because I, I do want us to look at these first few verses of Haggai that Barbara read a moment ago. And then at the end, at the end, I want us to ask, what does this all mean for us? So we'll do a backstory and then read some kind of look into, at least put our toe in the water of these first few verses and then ask, what does it mean for us? So the backstory, where, what world are we in when we step into Haggai? Because it is a very different world than the world you and I live in. And underland, uh, to understand the storyline of the Bible, you're going to have to get a couple things straight, especially as it relates to when God makes a covenant with his people. It's so, so important. And, and I recognize in, in this room there are people that are Bible scholars and there are people that are actually probably fairly new to the Bible. But, but the Bible is organized and, and the story of God is told in such a way that God makes covenants 
binding agreements with his people. And there are a series of covenants that God makes, and we don't have time to get on all of them, but God makes the covenant with Abraham. And then God elaborates on that covenant with Abraham and kind of further defines it with a covenant to Moses and the people of Israel. And so a lot of the Bible talks about that covenant. And then God makes another covenant with David. And, and, and the Bible talks a lot about that covenant that God makes with David. These series of covenants, what are the basics of these covenants, especially when you have Abraham and Moses and David? Well, just maybe this, this will help you remember some of the storyline. So here, here's the kind of first element of what these covenants were all about. First element is this. If the people, if the people kept the commands of God, if they walked in the ways of God, the Lord would bless them richly in what we call the promised land. That's kind of the, the first part of understanding, okay, well, what are the covenants and the agreements? So if the people of God kept the commands, if they walked in the ways of the Lord, the Lord would bless them. They'd be able to enjoy the land that God had promised to them. You see, God's a good father. He takes care of his children's needs. This is who God is. Good fathers protect their children. Good fathers provide for their children. Good fathers secure their children. They strengthen them. They love them. They nurture them. And that is exactly, that's exactly who God is. That's his character. So he would bless them richly. But then there's a second dimension to how these covenants work. If the people of Israel, the people of God, violated the covenants, if they chased after other gods, the Lord would bring curses on them, would curse them primarily by taking them out of the land and scattering them, scattering them among the nations. So again, this is some of the basics of understanding a lot of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. If the people of Israel didn't follow God's ways, if they didn't love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, then he would take them out of that land and scatter them. God is a good father. Good fathers don't just watch as the people that they love make train wrecks of their lives. They can't. They can't. That is certainly we can't control other people's behavior. But we, but we intervene, and, and it says that, that a good father is one who disciplines the ones that he loves. And that's exactly what the Lord does. He's not going to let someone break their relationship with him, pursue their own harmful plan, and not step in. God is going to show them that, that not everything's okay. That's what God is going to do. He's a good father. And then finally, there's there's a third dimension, and that is if the people of God returned to the Lord, he would exercise compassion and graciously gather them from wherever they were scattered and bring them back to the land. So you you see the dimensions of that. If, If they live and walk with the Lord, then God's going to bless them richly. If they don't, he's going to discipline them. But but if they turn to him, he's a good father. And remember what the father does in the story of the prodigal son? He runs out to meet the son. And he doesn't, he doesn't greet the son with arms crossed and a scowl on his face. He, he opens arms and welcomes him back into, that, back into the home. Well, this is what the Lord promised to do for his people. When you turn, I'll receive you. I'll welcome you back. What's amazing is to accomplish all of what you see there, God would use nations, governments, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, children. God would use sin. God would use revival. God would use good people and bad people. God would use the famous and God would use the no names. God uses kings and prophets and priests and, and many more 
to implement his plans. What others might go, hmm, that's an interesting coincidence. What a turn of history. None of that, none of that surprised God. God wanted to bless his people. He would be their God and they would be his people. Someone has even summarized it in this way that I think is pretty easy to remember. This is what God wants. God wants his people in the promised land under his rule and enjoying his blessing. God wants his people in the land that's been promised to them, living joyfully in obedience to what he says and receiving his blessings. Again, I don't want to belabor the backstory, but that is the backdrop. So the story of Haggai is, is moving kind of between that second part and that third part where God has scattered the people of Israel because they didn't obey, and now he's regathering them back in the land of Israel. God was writing history to bring the people back into the land. God made promises, and we know, we know, God always keeps his promises. So the people are coming back, and they're actually coming back in waves. The first of those waves is around, scholars say, about 535 B.C. What I miss sometimes when I think of like numbers and think of historical records is sometimes I forget people. I can tell you 42,000 people came back, but each one of those had a story. Each one of those came back with hopes and fears and dreams and disappointments. There are the elderly, the young, the middle-aged, the connected, the lonely, the single, the married, mildly religious, probably super religious. By the time Haggai writes, the 42,000 people have been back in the land for about 15 years. I would imagine Haggai is speaking to people. Well, let's just put ourselves in that place. If we were in that place, we, we might be tired. Tired of rebuilding. Tired of wondering, God, have you abandoned us? Or, or perhaps we're just confused. We, we, why did all this happen, and how can we prevent it from ever happening again? Or maybe if we recognize that our parents and our grandparents and our aunts and our uncles all experienced the judging hand of God, maybe we're eager and we say, let's rebuild so God can do something new. Maybe we're excited about taking up social causes or economic causes or Maybe we're the cynic that says it's never going to get better. You see that pile of ruins? That's all there's ever going to be. I remember back in the good old days, and it'll never be like that. It's going to be devastated forever. Nothing good's going to come out of that. That's where Haggai begins. So I have a question as we think of the people in Haggai. A question would be, if they're going to rebuild, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild their lives, here's the question. What do the people of God need the most to do that? What do the people of God need the most? I think that's an important question. If I think of even just, if it's helpful, thinking of the Somali refugees that come back, they've been out of the land of Somalia, they come back in 2017, what would you say their biggest needs were? Actually, we could, if I had a whiteboard here and we just were taking things from the, from the congregation and say, what are, what are some of the ideas? Actually, there would probably be, you could make a good case for a lot of good things. 
You could say, well, they're, they're going to, I mean, they're going to have to eat. So they're, the basics of food and, and water, and they're going to have to have some sort of shelter from the elements. And so those things would have to be right at the top of the list. They will need food and water and shelter. And actually, beyond that, they're going to need a productive economy that actually sustains this, not just that gives relief for a few moments or a few months or even years, but actually something that can help them for decades. And if, if they're going to get reestablished, they're going to need uh, good government. They're going to need not, not crooks running the show, but they're going to need good, good people, and they're going to need health and sanitation. My goodness, how, how can you survive if disease is running rampant? They're going to need care in that area. They're going to need police and security that is strong, a, a, a good presence for, for help. They're going to need infrastructure. And then you think of the, the, the kids. I mean, the kids are going to need some sort of education that may help them advance their station in life. I mean, there is a world of needs coming back to a place to rebuild. What do they need the most? And the book of Haggai tells us something that maybe you expect this to be the answer in church or maybe it just totally slips our mind. But actually it tells us that what the people of God need the most is to hear from God. That's what they need the most. They need to hear God speak. They need to hear from him. We might take that for granted and assume, well, of course they need to hear from God. Yeah, I just kind of assume that. But let's not. Let's not. The entire premise of the book of Haggai is that God has words for his people. And that's good news because people don't live by bread alone. Deuteronomy and Jesus tells us in Matthew 4. But by every word that comes out of God's mouth. And then Romans 10 would tell us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by God's word. What do the people of God need desperately? What we need to do is we we need to hear from God. And God cares so much about his people, even after the number of times that Israel has rebelled against him, even after the number of times that Israel has neglected him because they've got, got other things to do. God still cares about speaking to his people. He's eager to communicate them to them, eager to reveal himself to them, eager to give them direction, eager to point them into the most important things of their lives. What kind of parent doesn't communicate and talk to their kids? Not a good one. You see coaches and you see teachers and you see mentors and you see bosses and all those people, the best of them are ones that know how to communicate. They know how to talk to people to inspire, to convict, to challenge, to encourage, to bring out the best. And all, all earthly examples you've seen of people using their words to build people up, all those pale in comparison to what God does when he speaks. What the people needed the most was to hear from God. The Bible's made up of God speaking, and that isn't unique. But here's what I was struck by in Haggai. And I I actually want you to be alert and kind of noticing this as we go through this book in the coming, coming weeks. How often you will read things like, the word of the Lord came to, or the Lord says this, or this is what the Lord declares. This is no accident. As a matter of fact, if if your Bibles are still open, look at, let's just look at the first five or six verses here in Haggai 1. I just want you to notice it, see it for your own eyes. So it says in Haggai 1, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, 
And then you'll notice it, right? And I've underlined it here. The word of the Lord came. That's not just religious speak. Something happened there, right? The word of the Lord came, and that was by the hand of Haggai through the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The second verse, thus says the Lord. And immediately following that, you've got actually what the Lord said. You've got quotation from the Lord. Can we, can we go on to verse 3? So verse 3 says this, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. And this isn't just a careless writer who just could have used, you know, some words to simplify some things and chose not to. This is, this is intentional. The question comes in verse 4, and we'll we'll look at that question a good bit next week. Then look at even verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Friends, this is the way the whole book goes again and again and again. If you're kind of in the habit of underlining your Bible, if you start underlining every time the Lord says, the Lord says, the word of the Lord came, Haggai is going to be filled with underlining. I think I counted 26 times, and the word count isn't isn't as significant as for us realizing 26 times some phrase or some formula is used, the word of the Lord came, God said this, the Lord of hosts says this. It's to tell us that God has something to say to his people. It's to get our attention so that we do not miss this. This is the basic of Haggai. God is speaking, and he's speaking through Haggai to Zerubbabel, the governor, and he's speaking through Haggai to Joshua, the priest, but he is really speaking to the people. God has something to say to his people, and we're in the dark until he speaks. What the people needed most is to hear from God, and maybe you think, well, that's great. That's been a, a fascinating introduction to Haggai. I kind of have a little bit more idea of what was going on historically. But what does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? Well, I go back to that same question. What do the people of God need the most? Yeah, not just in 520 BC. What do you need the most? What do I need the most? And I actually get the same answer. I have a thousand things that I think I need the most. (laughs) What I need the most, what you need the most, is to hear from God. To hear God speak. Our earthly situation, praise God, is much more stable than the desperate times of Haggai. I'm grateful for that. But in all my busyness in maybe being tired or maybe you're confused or eager or cynical or distracted, hurt or disappointed, do you realize in all those you actually need to hear from God? The fact is maybe you have, what, what, what if, what if you've talked yourself into believing something's okay in your life and really it's not? You know what you need in that moment? You need to hear from the Lord. You need to hear from God. What if you find yourself this morning in in a place where your world is falling apart, at least as you knew it, and you're not sure you're going to survive it emotionally, maybe even survive it physically, and, and yet what if there's a deeper story that God's writing? Don't you need to hear from him about that? Before you press on another hour alone, another week alone without hearing what God might have to say to you in your situation? What if there's something horribly wrong in your life and you can't see it? 
often sin blinds us and we, we don't see it, don't, don't we need to hear from God? What if you're in deep pain and despite your efforts to work through it, you, you need help? You've tried. Every, everything you know to deal with that pain, you've tried. Don't you need to hear from God? What if you have questions about big things in your life or small things in your life? And you need discernment or direction? Because the next month, the next year could determine a lot about the rest of your lives. Don't you need to hear from God? What if you're beginning something new? What if you're finishing up a season of your life? Don't you need to hear from the Lord? Don't we all need to? We'll dig into the story in coming days, but for this morning, I, I, I feel like we can just settle there for, for a few moments. Let's do an honest evaluation. Let's ask some questions. And, and the question may be a little bit oddly framed to you, but I, I want to ask it. Is your, heart, is your heart in a position to hear from the Lord? Is it even in a position? Are you receptive? Do you care what he has to say? Are you eager to say, speak, Lord? Your, your, your servant's listening. I'm, I'm ready to hear. What, what, what practices might help you actually lean into hearing from God? As you think through your answers to these questions, I, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Evaluate your heart. I mean, let's not play games with God. He knows. He knows what's going on right here anyway. Do we really want to hear from him? Or do we just want to do our own thing and have him maybe bless us a couple times along the way? Do we want to hear from him? What practices do you think will put you in a place to hear from the Lord? I'd ask you, do you, do you make the gathered worship and fellowship of God's people, do you make that a priority? And by priority, I mean priority is when you say no to other good things so that you can do this thing. That's a priority. Is gathering together because you never know. What if a scripture that is read, a song, a prayer, or a worship leader says something that the Lord opened your eyes to see something about him? What if you hear from God? Or, or maybe God is leading you to, to the practice of like going deeper in the word with other people. I'm, I'm thinking here about what could and should be happening in homes and around tables and circles and groups in one-to-one meetings with our Bibles open and we're talking about God's work in, in making us look more and more like Jesus. How, and, and that gives us accountability and understanding. Does that happen? Is there an opportunity for someone else to speak into your life and you hear from them and you actually hear from the Lord? How much of a priority to you is it to hear from God? Is there anything you could do even this afternoon to initiate going deeper in God's word with others? Is there something you could do? Personally, could you take in God's word on a regular basis? I'm thinking here of like Bible open or, or, if, or if you're inclined the screen on or if you say, I, I have a hard time reading, but I love listening. Okay, so the earbuds are in. What will it take for you to just take in God's word, to chew on it? Maybe it's one verse. Maybe it's a chapter. Maybe it's three chapters. Maybe it's five minutes. Maybe it's 25 minutes. To just take it in and hear from God. Meditate and memorize and read it and reread it. How much of a priority is that to you? How many more months of your Christian life would you go without that being a priority? 
to hear from God? Where, where could you start? Who could you talk to that might help you get started? Yeah, I've, I've got all the reasons in the world why I couldn't do any of that. Who might you talk to that could actually talk you to a different place than that? Well, the starting point of Haggai is a good place. I think for us to even end today, I want us to hear from God and I'm actually going to have us close by reading a promise from God's word. Could, could we put Isaiah 55 up on the screen here? I'd love for us to read this together. This is an amazing promise. This is an amazing promise from God about his word, what his word could do if we're eager to hear from him. Can we read that together? For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. That's an amazing promise. Let's pray. Father, make it a priority in our lives to hear from you. We're, we're busy. We've got lots of things going on. We've got lots of priorities to juggle. To make hearing from you a priority, we're going to have to say no to some things that are fairly important to us, some things we value. Father, help us. Speak to us, Lord. We're grateful that you are not quiet, but you have spoken to us in your Son, and you've spoken to us in your Word. You're speaking to us through your Holy Spirit. We praise you for that. We ask that our hearts would be ready to hear, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.